0: Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through, well, some of the exciting things that have been happening in April 2019 on the St Emlyn's blog. So we're going to kick off with a Journal Club post by Dan Horner, who's a colleague of ours, an intensivist and emergency physician, working in a hospital not a million miles away from Verchester, somewhere we tend to call Verchester West. And he looked at the Andromeda shock trial caused a bit of a stir on social media, this one. Basically, it's a study that was done in South America, Argentina, if I remember rightly, where they compared a resuscitation strategy for shocked patients with septic shock, comparing whether or not they would target lactate levels or whether they would target peripheral perfusion as measured by capillary refill time. Now, this is a really interesting study because we've been wedded to things that we can measure and preferably if it comes in a big shiny machine that goes bing for a long period of time now and that's lactates. But actually lactate, if you speak to a lot of people who really understand sepsis, they'll say that actually lactate isn't telling you what you think it's telling you. Actually there's a really good blog on the on the site from Rich Carden about lactate, lactate, which goes into why most of the conversations I have with colleagues in the ED about what a lactate means, it means anaerobic um, metabolism, spoiler, no it doesn't, is is wrong. And actually we should be thinking about lactate in a very different way. And certainly the, the really clever intensivists like John Myberg and Simon Finfer have really made me stop and think about that. Anyway, put that to one side, back to the trial. Have a look on the blog, obviously read it. Always read your own papers, always make your own judgments. Don't listen to anything I say or what Dan says, although he is very clever. But have a look at that. Basically, what they did, as I said, is they compared this lactate with a capillary refill time and followed the patients up. And very interestingly, actually, and very good, I think, is they didn't just look at proxy markers, but they looked at outcomes for the patients. And interestingly, the patients who were monitored and managed using peripheral perfusion actually did better than those who have managed using lactate. Now, the trial is not large enough and it's underpowered probably to show any difference. So we've got to be a bit cautious about interpreting those results. But there's, well, there's a signal there, which is interesting. But even if you don't think that one is better than the other, the likelihood that they're probably very similar is probably quite true. So that's really interesting. Now, there are some problems with the trial. It's not necessarily the population that we see. It's not necessarily the way that we treat our patients. So whether it's transferable to our UK practice and whether or not we should be abandoning lactate and going for capillary refill soon, uh, I don't think so. But this is really important to go and have a read about. Uh, Dan also draws the attention to the fact that you can do capillary refill really quite frequently with no um, additional tests. So maybe there's a monitoring and sort of intervention issue going on here as well. It's not definitive, but it is very interesting. I, I would recommend you go and have a look at that actually. It's, um, it's a good trial. We then got um, an interesting blog by Nick Smith. Again, he's uh, making more appearances on the blog, isn't he? He's doing a lot of uh, medical education stuff. And this is one about improving your learning with no effort at all. In fact, it's a really lazy way of improving how you learn. Interested? I hope so, because this works. Okay. And it came out of a conversation Nick and I had after we both read a book called Why We Sleep. By Matthew Walker and I'd strongly recommend you read it actually it's changed a lot of what I do in my life and it's certainly changed my approach to medical education in relation to sleep the bottom line with this is here we go if you are not rested before and you're not rested after a learning educational event you don't retain the facts that, that's basically the conclusion now it really does make a difference. Um, It makes a difference to that in terms of learning. But then there's also the issues around when you learn. So there are some people who are naturally larks. That's me. I get up at six o'clock in the morning every day of the week. I honestly do, even on Sundays and Saturdays, even if I don't have to. But that's just me. Um, And other people, like Nick, don't get up until about lunchtime, by the sound of things, or what he puts in the blog. But we're very different. So I'm quite happy to learn in the morning. Nick isn't. There there are differences. It also changes as your age changes. So uh, teenagers... Of which I have two, they naturally have a a circadian rhythm which goes further into the night and wants them to sleep earlier, to sleep longer in the morning. So, trying to teach anybody anything in my house at about eight o'clock in the morning is probably a waste of time, to be honest. This is really important if you're into medical education. It's really important if you're into learning. Now, it did make me stop and think, um, on the basis of the SMAC conference, of course, which we've uh, just been through, that conferences are experiences where I often travel. Um, so imagine that you're traveling internationally for, for example your circadian rhythms and your sleep patterns will be disrupted you're um, probably not sleeping as much as you should both before and probably after when you're trying to get home even even a uk conference will do that to be honest um, and actually there's some other stuff in there as well that, and sadly is the really bad one folks um, alcohol absolutely knackers your ability to learn too Now, I've been to plenty of conferences where people don't sleep, stay up all night for the networking and social events, which are great, of course, and probably drink. And it's clearly not great for learning. Sorry, all bad news. But there are things that you can do. And uh, Nick's put some great suggestions on there and also some incredibly good graphics. He's he's developing quite a spectacular ability to do infographics. And I'd uh, invite you to go and have a look at those. Then uh, we got another blog from the St. Emily's Live Conference, which we did last year. This one is on aortic emergencies with George Willis. Now, George Willis is out of Baltimore. He's a great speaker, actually. He's a, a wonderful guy, um, has an amazing history. He used to play uh, professional football, professional American football, which, you know, So this guy's got talent. Really interesting presentation about aortic emergencies. I think all of us who've worked in emergency medicine for any period of time will know that m- you've probably missed an aortic emergency. I know I've certainly been part of one in the past. An 8 year old woman, this is very long time ago when I was a house officer, 8 year old woman turns up with her first diagnosis of renal colic. No, she didn't. That was a uh, missed, uh, ruptured aortic aneurysm. And I think if you speak to any experienced emergency physician, they'll probably tell you some form of similar tale. So George has got a really good presentation on how to diagnose them, use of the clinical history, use of things like ultrasound, which can pick up things, obviously, a a triple-A in the abdomen. Fair enough. But we can also pick up things like dissections on echo and uh, transthoracic echo. I've seen them. I've seen uh, dissections picked up on abdominal ultrasound and things like that. So really some good tips there. And he also talks about how we actually manage our patients, particularly the dissection patients can be really complex in the ED um, with very hypertensive episodes where how do you manage that? How do you take the strain off the dissection without killing the patient and the use of different drugs? So use of drugs like libetalol and other drugs, beta blockade and alpha blockade to try and reduce the blood pressure. So some really excellent practical tips about how you manage that. And um, he also talks about a case where you get back bleeding into the pericardium you get a pericardial effusion and potentially a tamponade and how you can draw fluid out to actually uh, maintain and, and allow the patient to survive i've been involved in one case with that where uh, we did do it we managed to maintain um, output by doing it but unfortunately the patient did succumb but that technique of uh, pericardial aspiration can be a holding measure for some of these you know tremendously unwell and often quite young patients so uh, really good stuff on there there's been some quite good stuff coming out of arkem um, as well about. About, uh, missing aortic emergencies. So this is really a hot topic. George has put it together very nicely. The audio is on there, the videos on there, and some links as well. So we're going to have a quick peek at that. It's good stuff. Then we've got a nice post again from Dan Horner. He's been busy this month, based on his talk which he did in Belfast at the Archem Conference, looking at the management of PEs and in particular around ambulatory care. Now this is something which has been. Well, we've been doing in in Virchista for a long period of time. I think we were one of the first places in the UK to really start treating and investigating our PEs essentially almost exclusively as outpatients unless they've got cardiovascular compromise or some other feature that they can't go home. So... He's talking quite a lot on this blog about things like prognostic factors, about identifying the group of patients who you might not want to send home, you might want to keep in the ED. Certainly, he looks at the different scores, so things like PESI, SPEZI, which are used to predict uh, complications. Bottom line in that is they're probably better than Gestalt which is, I suppose, helpful. So he doesn't really come down on a definitive answer, but things like the Spezi score and the Hestia score, which is a little bit more complicated than Spezi, come down on some idea of a developing prognosis, but the data isn't actually brilliant out there at the moment. There are some more... Cardiac markers, well, not just cardiac markers—a whole bunch of biomarkers coming out to try and predict outcome after PE. None of those have really been fantastic. Um, We've got some reasonably good scores for predicting risk of bleeding, so things like the has and the VT Bleed scores that are knocking around there. But again, the the data out there is not particularly definitive, and it's difficult to come down on the on which one is the best. But the feeling here is you should probably be doing at least one of them. They talked a little bit about treatment. Um, we're seeing a change in practice. I'm not sure it's massively evidence based from use of things like warfarin and synthron into the uh, the NOACs, or, sh- or as we should call them now, the DOAX, So the oral anticoagulants, which are seeing a lot more being used therapeutically, with this, and we're also seeing people coming into the ED with issues related to them. And I think that's probably going to be the direction of travel. Although we would we would want a better evidence base than the one we've got so far, really, in terms of. Uh, special circumstances, well, gosh, there's loads, aren't there? Pregnant patients are still a difficulty. We have a policy in Manchester, certainly, where we have a very informed conversation with the mother. Um, we do a lot of ultrasound scanning to look for evidence of whether or not there's uh, a clot that we can find. Uh, we use VQ scanning. We don't use a lot of CTPA, but actually the debate around that is still quite complicated. And, uh, and it may be the right thing to do in some patients. So lots of really interesting stuff on there to pick up from Dan. He's got quite a few resources on the website, on the blog, which will help you with uh, clear guidance around risk stores, looking at exclusion criteria for inpatient care, some options around the use of DOACs and some ideas about how you can get that through your local formulary because they're arguably going to be the way forward that we're managing PEs, at, certainly in the ambulatory population. Some guidelines on the suggestion that we can potentially even manage some of our pregnant patients in the ambulatory setting, which is a bit controversial but probably a good idea and some guidelines for follow-up because we don't want to get these patients diagnosed, started on treatment and then lost. We've also put some links up on the blog around the management of things like submassive PE management and thrombolysis, which again is a controversial area in the management of pulmonary embolus. So loads of great stuff on there. If you are managing your PEs, I suggest you have a look at this because it will really bring you up to date and get you back on track on the latest evidence as supplied by Dan. Then to finish off in April we've got two very challenging blogs really both written by Liz Crow and they deal with her experiences of being involved in a tragedy for want of a better word when things have gone terribly wrong in her experience in a clinical job it's had a profound effect upon her For those of us who've worked in emergency medicine for a long period of time, I'm sure we've all got a history of cases which we will never forget, really, where things have not gone well and where, to some extent, we carry a lot of those emotions with us. Now, Liz's experience is relatively recent and her description of how she felt and the impact it had on her, her colleagues and those around her is is really profound. But what she's done more than happens in a lot of these blogs when you do see them out in the Twitter sphere and the the blogosphere is she's also talked about how you come back from that. What strategies you can adopt to get yourself through it, to help yourself, your family, your friends, your colleagues deal with what can be an experience which can almost break you as a clinician. So the two blogs really need to be read together. The first is about the experience. The second is about how you get back. I think this, together with some of the other work which is out there, so for instance, like Simon McCormick's work on the broken toy blog, they're both worth a really good read. If you've experienced this yourself, you'll hopefully find it useful if you've not experienced it yet or if you're supporting somebody else who has, I'm sure you'll find it very, very useful. So have a look at that and we're hopefully going to get a podcast specifically about that issue fairly soon. So I won't say much more about it now. I will invite you to read it. I will invite you to have a lovely time in your, wherever you're working at the moment. We're incredibly busy feels like climate change in the emergency department in that we're breaking records on a regular basis now for numbers of people through the door for complexity and for difficulty so we're really busy but it's still a great job and we're still having lots of fun enjoy your emergency medicine and we'll speak to you again soon